Uh, we got a fantastic interview for you guys today. Uh, Harvard Law Professor Larry Lessig and possible presidential candidate. Hmm, fun for everybody. Uh, now, he has an incredibly unique candidacy, which he'll tell us about and I'll ask him about. So without further ado, Larry Lessig, how are you? I'm great. Great to be here, Cenk. All right. So first of all, I think some people are confused. Are you running for president or are you not? If we hit the funding target that we've set by Labor Day, a million dollars by Labor Day raised in this crowdfunded Kickstarter-like way, then I'm going to be a candidate for president. Okay. And what's your target? The target is $1 million. We're one week into it. We've hit 400. We've, we're just about to hit $400,000. Jesus and Lord Mercy, sounds like you're going to run for president. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounds like we're on the way, but it's going to take, you know, $600,000. It's not small change. All right. Sounds good. Now, is there another condition involved here, like, for you to not run? Right. Well, if all of a sudden the leading Democratic candidates, Hillary and Bernie, say, yeah, Lessig's right, this issue of uh, corrupting influence of the inequality of the system is going to be the central issue we push, the first issue we tackle in our administration, then uh, my work's done. But if they don't, um, then I'm going to be in this race and I'm going, to, and I'm going to make a run for the nomination. So campaign finance reform is how they would describe it in Washington. That's what you're running on. And it's unique because you're, you're saying this would basically be a referendum president what, what, what does that mean? Um, you know, what does this one issue presidency uh, indicate? What does it mean? Because I think nobody's ever seen this before, so they've got to have a lot of questions around it. Yeah, that's right. So let's, let's step back a little bit and understand what it's really about. People like to call this campaign finance reform. Those aren't words I like to use because I think that's like talking about an alcoholic as somebody with a liquid intake problem. That's a very very sterile way to talk about a fundamental problem in our democracy. And that problem, you can really understand, is a problem of equality. I'm not talking about wealth equality. I'm not talking about speech equality. What I mean by that is the equality we're all supposed to have in a representative system. In a representative system, your vote, your voice, your power in that system is supposed to be the equivalent of mine. But right now we have a system where 130 families have given a half the amount of money that's been raised in the Republican primary so far. 400 people, 400 families, have given half that have been raised in all the primaries so far, which means they have extraordinary power in our political system. And what that power translates into is the ability basically to block any kind of reform. So when people like Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton talk about the amazing things they're going to do when they're elected president, I want to be the guy who says, look, the emperor's wearing no clothes. The emperor is wearing no clothes because they can't achieve any of the things they're talking about until they address this corrupting inequality first. And so that's the objective of this campaign. Now, what we know from polls, polls that were published just recently in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, if we could have a referendum on this issue, like California has a referendum power. If we could have a national referendum on this issue, we would win. Overwhelmingly, people on the left and the right and the center think this corrupted system has to change. 
But we don't have a referendum power in the federal constitution. We're not going to get one anytime soon. It's probably a good idea. I've lived in California. I can see how crazy that system can be. But the point is, we need a way to represent in this referendum-like way what the people want. And so we found a way to hack a referendum into the system. And that is the referendum candidate. So what I've said is, I will run. I will be elected on one issue, this foundational issue. When we pass the reform that we've described, I'll step aside. And the vice president, whether it's Hillary or Bernie or someone else, will take over and run administration, but now with a Congress that's actually free to lead rather than spend its time following the lead of its funders. So I want to come back to that issue of how you would govern in a second. But uh, I think a lot of progressives are asking, why don't you believe Bernie? Like, they, they, they understand why you don't believe Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's hard to argue she's for change, given that the Clintons are an enormous part of the establishment. But Bernie Sanders says he'd do it. Why don't you believe him? Oh, I believe he wants to do it. I believe Bernie because I've known Bernie. I've seen Bernie. I think Bernie has been an incredible leader for progressive ideas throughout his time in the United States Senate. He has been consistently pushing for ideas that he's now talking about. He is no triangulator. He is the real deal. The question isn't what he believes, though. The question is what he can do. And so when he runs for president, and if he's elected, and I'm not somebody who believes he can't be elected. I believe he could be elected. If he were elected, he would be elected with a mandate that's divided among five or six different issues. And when you have a divided mandate, and you stand up to Congress, and you take on the most powerful forces in our democracy, what that divided mandate is worth is nothing. It can't take on those forces and win, because they'll always have an excuse, because the system depends on them keeping their power, because as Elizabeth Warren puts it, the system is rigged. And that power, that power even if somebody as committed and strong as Bernie is not going to be enough to overcome that rigged system. So what I've said is we need to have a single mandate. We need a candidate with an overwhelming mandate for one idea, for the idea of taking on that power and winning. And if we had that mandate, then maybe we could win. I don't even know if it's certain we could win. This is not an easy thing to imagine winning, but it is the best shot we've got, and it's a thousand times more likely than anything that either Bernie or Hillary could do if they won, even if they won with a landslide. Uh, I can tell that you're not a, a politician, Professor Lessig, uh, because you say things like, I'm not sure we're going to win. You're supposed to say, oh, we're going to win. And if you believe in the Donald Trump school, I'm fantastic. I'm the best. Bernie's the worst. He's a baby. <laughs> okay, now you haven't gotten in that direction at all, which I think I rather like. It almost sounds like honesty to me. Um, now, having said that, let's get back to governance because that uh, goes to, to your answer. Okay, let's say you get in office and you say, hey, look, Bernie Sanders would have a divided mandate. I would have one mandate. So what do you do with everything else? I mean, let's say it takes 20 days, 100 days, a year. Are you running the country? What are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. So there's only one president. And that one president is responsible for every decision that's made in the office of the president. And so what I've got to do in the course of this campaign is to convince people that, in fact, I'm the resp a responsible person to hold that incredible responsibility. Now, of course, I'm a different kind of president. I'm a trustee. I'm a trustee for the people to get this referendum legislation passed. 
I'm also a trustee for the vice president because unlike a normal vice president, which when we pick it, we hope like hell that person is never president because the only way he or she is president is if the actual president has been murdered or dies. My vice president is a person who, when we appoint him or her, we want him or her to serve as president as soon as possible. So when I would make decisions as president in the context of a referendum presidency, I would be acting as a trustee for that vice president as well. So in the room, sitting right next to me, as I make those decisions, would be a number of advisors, including, most importantly, that vice president. But the decision is mine. It is mine as president, and I would make those decisions according to my values and judgment about what makes sense in that context. Now, let's be real, though. I want to create the incentives for Congress to pass this law as soon as possible. So I'm going to make decisions that I think are in the best interest of the country, but I'm also going to make decisions that are going to create the most pressure I can create on Congress to do what the people have demanded, because I don't want to spend a day in that office longer than I have to. And I think ideally, if in fact this referendum passed, I should spend no more than an hour in that office. I shouldn't even sleep in the White House. I should sign that bill after I've been inaugurated and then leave that office and allow the next president to be sworn in. So, okay, that raises a number of other issues. The the Republicans uh, are not known for being conciliatory. So, yes, the mandate would be clear, but it's not like they've haven't ignored clear mandates before. So um, isn't it unrealistic to expect that the Republicans would then say, oh, a Democrat has won and he this is his most important issue. By all means, of course, let's pass the bill you'd like. Yeah, if it were a regular Democrat running as a regular politician, getting elected as a regular president, then all those moves would be possible. Republicans could stalemate and stall just as they have in this last president's administration. But look, it's not a regular Democrat running as a regular president. And it's not running on a regular sort of geeky-like issue called campaign finance. What this issue would be is the fundamental commitment of a representative democracy, equal citizens. And while Bernie Sanders, when he talks about equal equality in the context of wealth, is in my view talking about something very important, That big idea of equality is actually not believed in by most Americans. That's a pretty divided America when you talk about that sense of equality. But the equality I'm talking about, the equality of citizens, is something that I don't think anybody can argue against on the other side. So if the Republican Party wants to take on the mission of arguing against the idea of equal citizens, then make my day because I would be more than happy to wage a fight, whether it took a day or a week or however long it took, to get them to finally come to the place that I think most Americans believe they should be, believing in equal citizens. And especially after we've had a campaign where this has been the central issue in the campaign. We would go to every member of Congress as they were running up to the November election. We'd be asking them, are you going to stand with the people with a people's referendum? Or are you going to vote against the people when the people's referendum is passed? And if they are going to vote against the referendum, let their constituents know about that. We would create every political pressure we could to change this from a partisan fight between Republicans and Democrats to the kind of fight it is, a fight between the insiders in Washington and people outside. Now, 
The way I do that is the way you've done it, Cenk. It's not to bow down to the Democratic Party at every turn. It's not to believe that the only value in America are the values the Democratic Party talks about. It's not to say that everything Democrats say is true. It's to say that I am a Democrat because I believe in the core values of the Democratic Party, but I don't think the party has lived up to those values either. I think the Democratic Party has been as much responsible for allowing the system of corruption to grow as the Republican Party. Look, the 1990s gave us Bill Clinton pushing the Democratic Party into this massive fundraising game as they bent over backwards to make Wall Street happy with what uh, the Democratic Party wanted. I think the Democrats are as much responsible for this as the Republicans. And this campaign, my campaign, would be a campaign that tried to say to Americans, look, we're not Democrats and Republicans first. We're citizens first. And as citizens, what we're entitled to is equal power in this democracy. And so use this election to demand at least that. Now, my biggest hope is that if this campaign gains traction, if I get the million dollars, if I begin to get the attention that guarantees I'm in the debates, if I get to raise this issue in the debates, and people begin to rally to it, then there'll be a Republican candidate who says he'll do the same thing. Because I think if the Republicans see a movement towards this reform, they're going to want to get part of it too. So you can imagine a Republican reform referendum candidate and a Democratic referendum candidate, which would be completely, uh, 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 it would be an ideal result because then it would allow us to focus on the Democratic and Republican vice presidential nominees and give us confidence that when we got to uh, November, we would be electing a reformer first. Now, I don't know the Republicans are going to have a referendum candidate, but I do know they have a candidate now that often talks about the corrupting influence of money in politics and does it very, very effectively and is number one in the field right now. And his name is Donald Trump. So uh, what do you make of Donald Trump outing the rest of the politicians saying, yeah, I give them money, and when they give them money, they do exactly what I tell them to do. Uh, do you view that to be a positive force in American politics? Absolutely. I think Donald Trump is the best gift to this movement since the Supreme Court decided Citizens United, because what it has done is it has made people perfectly aware of what we all in the back of our minds already believed. He's pulled back the curtain. And now in the Republican Party, you can't pretend that this money is not having an effect because Donald Trump has made it clear it does have an effect. And he knows because he's been the giver and he's been the giver to many of these various candidates up on stage and to candidates on the Democratic stage. Why was Hillary Clinton at the wedding? Well, he answered that question because he knew she needed his support. So this reality is accepted by Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, but the difference between Donald Trump and me on this, I mean, there's a lot of differences, including about $10 billion, but the difference between Donald Trump and me on this issue is that Donald Trump has no solution other than electing billionaires. And in my view, we already had that fight. It was called the revolution. We said, to hell with a system where you've got to rely on the rich, the people who are independent, to govern the nation. We need a democracy, a representative democracy. So I want the same thing he wants, Namely, politicians who are not dependent on their funders, but I want to get that, not by depending on billionaires, but instead by having a system where politicians do not have to bend over backwards to please the tiny fraction of the 1% who fund their campaigns.
Can you withstand an attack uh, from the Republican Party, let alone uh, the fury that is Donald Trump? Because now you say even if you were elected president, it, then you have the mandate. I mean, you were the referendum president. This isn't about Larry Lessig. Who cares about Larry Lessig? It's about the issue. Okay, I hear you on all that. But that's not going to stop them, and it's certainly not going to stop Trump from saying, ah, oh, this egghead who's in an ivory tower doesn't know anything. He's a baby. He's a dum-dum. He's a loser. He, you know, he's going to say, he's going to throw everything he's got at you. Uh, are you ready for that? You've never been in politics before, and how would you respond to that? You know, I've never been in politics before, but I do have three young children. I've been through that kind of tantrum many, many times. And it's taken time, but I think I'm pretty good at managing it. Look, he can say what he wants. And I hope he says lots of things that are angry and vicious towards me because, you know, it would help focus the issue. Because while he could yell and scream and call me names, what he can't do is take back the words he's already said. And the words he's already said are the words that I've said. We've both said this system is corrupted by the dependency of these politicians on these private monies to fund their campaigns. We've both said that. And let him now explain what the solution should be different from the solution I've talked about. His solution is billionaires run our country. Well, you know, I don't have much faith in that solution, and I have a revolution to prove it. What does he have on his side? What exactly would he offer as the reason for going back on the first commitment of our republic? You know, when Madison described the Constitution that he helped draft, he said in Federalist 52, it would be a constitution with a branch, Congress, that would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. And then in Federalist 57, he said, by the people, by the way, what I mean is, quote, not the rich more than the poor. Not the rich more than the poor. They were, in the critical sense, egalitarians. They believed that citizens should have equal power. They didn't believe everybody should have the same amount of money. They didn't believe that people should have the same power to speak. They didn't believe in all that equality, but they believed in this equality. And this equality is the one equality we've lost because we've allowed people like uh, Donald Trump to convince us somehow that having money is to be entitled to have power in our political system. Well, I reject that. And I think America would re reject that too. All right, let me ask you a, a tough question uh, that I would struggle with. Um, you, you're in favor of the Citizen Equality Act, which you, uh, you can explain in a second. I'm in favor of getting an amendment uh, to get money out of politics. Let's say Donald Trump says, yeah, I, that's the first thing I'm going to do. It's my first priority. Now, but we know that he's a maniac on, on every other account. And Hillary Clinton says, she doesn't have to say it, we know it. I will do everything exactly as it is today. I won't fix a thing, I won't change a thing, but I'll be reasonable and I'll be a Democrat and I'll do practical decision-making and things will continue as they are. Who do you support? Wait, so you're saying that Donald Trump says he's going to solve this issue first, but he's going to do all these other things too? But he's going to be a maniac in every other way that he's Donald Trump. Yeah, well, I don't support solving this issue bundled with getting us into war in Iran or bundled with turning, uh, you know, the hardest working Americans in America into enemies of America, namely immigrants, or insulting women or doing all the other things that Donald Trump is saying. I'm not saying, you know, it would be worth anything to get this reform. So, no, I wouldn't support Donald Trump in that context. I would say let's fight, let's wait and fight for a day where we don't have to sacrifice 
all of that in order to get this. But that's not, the, that's not what I'm offering. What I'm offering is a chance to get this and then get a president, whether it's Hillary or Bernie. I, I have a sense of where you are on that uh, choice, but whether it's Hillary or Bernie, who would be enormously beneficial to this nation for what they would be pushing, if only we could fix this corrupted, rigged system first. Now, it could... It could. By the way, it could be Al Gore, it could be uh, Elizabeth Warren, it could be anybody. So, which then leads to the obvious question, who would it be? That normally the presidential nominee picks the, uh, the VP uh, for their ticket. In this case, would you be the person picking the vice president? And how would that decision making go? I don't think it's appropriate that I have the same power, the same freedom that ordinary presidents would have or ordinary nominees would have. You know, an ordinary nominee gets to pick his or her vice president because, again, we hope that person never is president and the chances of that person being president are relatively small. So they've got to be qualified, but we, do, we give that discretion to the president. That makes sense. But in this case, I don't think that's fair because, because I'm in the position of being a president for as short a time as possible, and the vice president, we want to be president as soon as possible. So I would feel myself bound to decide this in a way that reflects the judgment of those who would be choosing me. Now, the challenge is, how do we figure that out? So one thing that's been suggested is, imagine we have tracking polls that say people who voted for Lessig, 70% of them supported candidate X um, to be vice president, or 70% of them supported candidate Y to be vice president. I would take those signals as a strong indication of who the party at the convention should be selecting to be the vice president. doesn't make sense that it's number two in the fight because that's you know, total conflict in values if it's number two in the fight. But if there were a person that the people who supported me says should be vice president, I would feel bound, strongly bound to respect that judgment um, as long as the convention agreed with me that that judgment led to a ticket that had a sure shot of winning in November. So you mentioned the convention in there. Would there be a vote at the convention to pick the vice president? So I think it would, should be decided on the basis of what the people who support me wanted. Who did they want to be vice president? Plus the judgment of the convention really has a constraint on that about whether that person helps the ticket to win in November. And that's a hard judgment. There's no precedent for this. But I think that's the kind of judgment that would have to be made in the context of picking the vice president. Is there anything that Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or anyone else in the race can do to knock you out of the race? For you to say, okay, well, look, it turns out you guys are going to do the same thing I'm doing. Uh, or is there nothing they can do? Well, I'm not sure there's anything they can do. But here's what I think would be necessary for it to be a hard question. They would need to say, this issue, this issue that many people have been talking about, the issue you've been talking about, the issue I've been talking about, this issue is going to be the first issue that they, as president, are going to address. They're going to run a campaign that focuses the nation's attention on this as the fundamental issue. And if they win, they will make passing legislation to deal with this corruption the first thing they do. If they say that, um, we could then have an argument about whether their mandate would be powerful enough. Um, but that would be a harder argument for me to make. Uh, and again, my objective is simply to get this issue decided in a way that makes democracy possible. So if they did that, I would be willing to say, if both of them did that, I'd be willing to say, look, the fight here is now to win on this issue and to make it possible for them to win the election uh, and to win uh, in, in passing that statute. 
But it, even if Bernie Sanders, uh, even if you were to believe that he's a progressive, per, perfect or ideal, perfect's too harsh a standard, but an ideal progressive candidate, and he says, okay, Larry, you win. Uh, I had it at issue number eight. I moved it to two, but okay, no moss. I move it to number one. It's going to be my top issue. He wouldn't have the built-in advantage that you're talking about where uh, he would be a referendum president. The Republicans would then say, no, we think he won because of income inequality or the climate change. So we will we'll never work with him on anything. You'll never get it done. Wouldn't that still be a problem? No, that's right. If all he did was say it's his first issue, there'd be no difference from where he is right now. There's no difference between it being number eight or number two or number one. But what I'm saying is he could do more than that. What he could do is say... This is not just my first issue. This is the focus of what I'm talking about as the thing we've got to do if we're going to make government possible again. And let me tell you, when we make government possible, then there are a lot of other things I want to do too, things that are important to my base, things like dealing with income inequality, dealing with climate change, taking on the banks. Those things are critical too. And know that I will do that after I've dealt with this issue. But I've got to deal with this issue if you're even going to have a reason to believe me on those other issues. That's different from just saying this is my top issue. That's saying the focus of my campaign, my administration will be this. Now, you're right. I think that's still a weaker mandate than the mandate I would have. I think the mandate I would have would still be much, much stronger to demand this kind of reform. And frankly, the potential to demand this reform in a cross-partisan way, I think, would be greater with what I'm talking about. So I'm not committing, uh, you know, a formula. I'm saying that if the judgment is proper, that that's just as likely, what uh, that strategy would be, would just as likely to win, I'm willing to concede that and step aside and, and let that happen. But what I'm trying to do is to engineer the highest probability that we can get a democracy back. And I think the mandate that I've described in the referendum president is the way to do that. So now progressives will say, hey, wait a minute. Now, everybody's got different ideas on how to solve this issue, right? So Bernie Sanders cares a lot about it. Hillary Clinton says she cares a lot about it. And other candidates talk about it as well. And they all have their different proposals. Why is your proposal better than anyone else's? So first, tell us what your proposal is. And secondly, why is it better? Yeah. So, but let's be clear. I'm happy to answer that. But let's be clear first. I'm not quibbling about the proposals. I'm not saying, you know, his proposal is a little bit too soft here or too strong there. That's not the point. My point is, if all it is is a proposal, it's just a wish list. And a wish list cannot defeat the most powerful political forces in Washington. So he's got to do more than just make a proposal. Even if he copied my proposal exactly, that's not enough. He's got to have a strategy for making it the first issue he takes on, that he bets his whole administration on winning that issue. If he, if he could do that, then it's credibly different from what he's talking about right now. Okay, but what is the proposal? Well, you know, as I've thought about this issue, as I've looked at it, you know, and, and I've been studying this um, intensely now for almost a decade, what it comes down to at its core is the is the fact that we've given up the basic commitment of a representative democracy, which is to re represent us equally. And we've done that in lots of ways. And the proposal I'm pushing, the Citizen Equality Act, would respond to that inequality in three different dimensions. So number one, the one I care the most about, the one you care uh, the most about, I think, is the corrupting way money uh, operates in our democracy. You know, in the old South, they used to have the white primary. 
And in the white primary, only whites could vote in the Democratic primary, and then blacks could vote in the general election. Now, none of us have any hesitation to say that that's a fundamental violation of equality. Because even though the blacks had the right to vote in the general election, they ought to have had the right to vote in the primary. Well, today we don't have a white primary. We have a green primary. We have a primary where those who fund campaigns get to pick the candidates that the rest of us get to vote among. And nobody can say just because we all get to vote for the candidates that the green primary participants have selected, there's nothing wrong with this system. No, there's something deeply wrong with this system. It denies us the basic equality of a representative democracy. So that's the core problem that you and I have been fighting about for a long time. But that's not the only inequality in our system. Second inequality is inequality of representation, like the way political gerrymandering divides up our country so that only a small number of seats are actually competitive, which means that citizens in the rest of America, uh, literally 355 seats out of 435 seats, those people in those districts who happen to be in the minority have no effective representation in Congress because the congressman doesn't have to worry about the minority party in his or her district because the congressman knows that the minority party can never defeat him or her. So those people look at government and say, that person doesn't represent me. Why do I? Why? I'm not even part of that system. And that's the product of the political gerrymandering that Democrats and Republicans both have been guilty of perpetrating. And so what the second part of this would do would be to end that gerrymandering and create systems of fair and proportional representation so all citizens have a shot at being represented in this democracy. And then number three, um, you know, uh, an, an inequality that falls most heavily on Democrats, actually on blacks who happen to be Democrats, are the systems for suppressing the vote. That have, been, that have grown up across the country, really in a part, motivated for partisan reasons, um, through systems of uh, ID checks or having elections on days where it's hard for people to vote and not allowing them to vote earlier, not allowing them to vote by absentee. All of these tricks, these devices, which are plainly designed to benefit one party and weaken the other, have no place in a fair representative democracy. So what the Citizen Equality Act says is, let's just solve these fundamental inequalities in one shot. And we could do it without even addressing the constitutional issues. We could address these three issues and create a principle, a core principle, America should be able to rally around. That's the point. If we're going to have a mandate, we've got to talk about something that most of America, the vast majority of America, can agree about. And I think they can agree that as citizens in a representative democracy, we all should have equal power in that democracy. So I would challenge you, though, on that, because I, I believe we need an amendment. And uh, if you pass this bill and you say, hey, let's publicly finance elections so that everybody's not beholden to the donors... Well, the Supreme Court will come in and say, no, Sheldon Adelson can come in and still give somebody a billion dollars. That's his constitutional right. And good luck with your little fun public uh, funding of the elections. Whatever you gave, 10 million, 100 million, Adelson or the Koch brothers or George Soros can swamp anyone. Yeah. So, you know, I don't believe this is either or. I think this is both and. And you and I have been working. Uh, I've been... Uh, Happy to help wherever, Wolfpack wherever I can to make it possible to get states to call on Congress to have an Article 5 convention to propose the kind of amendments that would deal with this problem to the extent it's a constitutional problem. 
Um, and I'm not saying we should give up on that cause. I'm not saying we should give up on the cause of even trying to get Congress to propose such an amendment. I think we should be fighting for the constitutional changes we need as hard as we possibly can. But look, we can't wait five or ten years to fix this democracy. We have problems we've got to address right now. And if we can build in this election a political movement committed to this idea of equality inside of the representative democracy, then that will only make the, cha- the, the task of dealing with the constitutional problems that much easier. I think after this referendum presidency, we can go on. We can move to the next question of how do we get to the convention that makes it possible for us to clean up whatever remaining mess there is caused by the Supreme Court's decision. So I agree with you. We need constitutional, uh, we need constitution to make it possible at least to limit the super PACs. That I think is the necessary step to make, it, to make the system work. And, and if the Supreme Court doesn't fix this, then absolutely, we've got to find a way to address it through a constitutional path as well. You say uh, you wouldn't give up on that issue or that cause of, of getting the amendment. Well, <laughs> not really an issue anyway, because you couldn't give me, get me to give up on that cause with a shovel. So <laughs> we, we got that on lockdown. Uh, we'll handle the amendment part through Wolfpack. But, uh, so obviously I understand the value of having a, a president uh, push for a bill uh, on this uh, issue as well. Now, I, I do want to get into, though, the nitty-gritty because people are going to ask you, they're, they're already asking me once we saw, they saw the videos that we did on your candidacy. Okay, you're president. Um, you need to do a drone strike. Are you ready to do a drone strike? Well, I mean, so the general form of that question is I'm president. I've got to act to defend the, um, to defend the United States or to act in a way that protects our citizens. So yes, I would act to defend the United States or protect our citizens. Do I believe in the policy of drone strikes? No, I don't believe in the policy of drone strikes. Um, Or at least I don't believe in the policy of drone strikes in the way in which they've developed or expanded. Um, I was struck by, for example, Malala's question to the president of the United States, saying, look, these drone strikes are only embedding a whole generation of people who want to kill Americans. And I think the biggest problem we've had in this context of this war is not thinking about what the long-term consequences of waging this war in this way would be for our children. Because, you know, our children, and I fear our grandchildren, are going to continue to face a a part of the world who is committed fundamentally to our own extermination. And that is a consequence, I believe, of an overreaction to the threat and the actions of terrorists in the middle of that war. So my own personal view is that that policy has gone too far. Now, as I said, my view of my role as referendum president um, is to act as a trustee for the people and for the vice president. And so in that negotiation, there might be some differences. Um, But I've got to act according to my own moral judgment of what's right in that context, and I'm just giving you a signal of what my moral judgment here is. Yeah, I actually think those two issues are also connected. Uh, I think that uh, money in politics is driving uh, our policy in terms of drone strikes and general defense policy. We've turned uh, the Defense Department into an offense department, not because of a global conspiracy where they get together in a room, but, but because... Everyone is motivated to make more money. They make more money from war, and they fund the politicians. 
So at least you'd be free of that influence. You, you'd, you wouldn't care whether Bechtel or Halliburton's going to take your donations away. So I guess that's a positive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the, the defense, you know, the, the fighting equipment. It's also the security infrastructure. I mean, the amount of money that's been turned over to these contractors. Of course, Snowden worked for one of them. But the amount of money turned over to these contractors to build the infrastructure of surveillance into our Internet is astonishing, astonishing. And none of it has been done with the real public debates. That's what Snowden's point was, with a public debate about how much of our taxes we should be spending to turn the government into spies of us. Um, now, that, I think, is completely illegitimate, but driven, you're exactly right, by this an insatiable demand of these contractors for this money of our government, and that gets fueled by the way in which they fund campaigns of the people who are in these positions. All right, one more on what would happen in the scenario where, where you win. We have a referendum president, but the Republicans are obstinate, which, again, they've been fond of, of being, right? And so it's, it's now 100 days in, and your vice president is saying to you, my God, Larry, we got to pass a, a highway bill. What, what are we doing here? Well, do you pass the highway bill? Do you start uh, getting into the nitty-gritty of legislation? Or do you put your foot down and say, I'm not passing any bills until you pass the Citizens Equality Act? Yeah, you know, that's, it might be that I've got to put my foot down and say we're not going to pass anything until we pass the, Citizens United, you know, the Citizen Equality Act. It might be I need to be Ted Cruz here. But the difference between me and Ted Cruz is that Ted Cruz doesn't have the mandate of the public behind him saying, do this one thing. What he's got is the mandate of a tiny fraction of the Republican Party behind him saying, do this one thing. So that's the whole point of the referendum. This is the mandate. We use whatever techniques are necessary to bring about passage of the bill the referendum has called for. Now, you know, it's not to say that this is a mechanical process. It's not to say, we're going to shut down the government until you pass this bill. This, these bills are complicated. I, I admit there's got to be a process of considering them. I hope most of that happens before Inauguration Day. But Inauguration happens, and they're still considering this. If in good faith they're acting on it, I just want to act on it as quickly as possible. Um, and so I would use um, whatever uh, leverage was necessary to get them to act as quickly as possible. And the difference between the power that I would have as president to do that and the power that anybody else would have as president is that those other presidents need Congress after Congress passes this bill. It's not just one bill they need Congress to pass. They need Congress to pass a bunch of bills for them if they're going to have a reasonable shot at getting reelected, because that's what every president wants to be in the system, reelected. But I don't have that constraint. I don't need Congress for anything except this one thing, to pass this bill. So there's an enormous amount of power the president has to use to achieve this one objective, and my power would be backed up by a mandate of the people to say, pass this law and let him go home. Well, you know, Ted Cruz is an interesting example to compare yourself to because in some ways he's on the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't mean politically. I mean that 36 out of the $37 million he's raised so far for his campaign comes from exactly three people. <laughs> and so he represents three people. You are running to represent everybody on this one issue and not be beholden to donors. Uh, but then, you know, people would turn around, Professor Lessig, and say, why should we believe you? 
You know, what, what, you know, a lot of people run for office. I know you're not a politician. You're a Harvard Law professor, but Trump's not a politician. Ben Carson's not a politician. I don't believe a word they say either. So why should we believe you that you'd get out of office, that you wouldn't let the power get to your head, that you're not doing that uh, to get the power in the first place? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, but here's one reason to believe me. Um, you know, if you're an ordinary politician, you run for office, you say, I want to do 10 things. You get to office, you do three or four of those things, you're a success. And you can be remembered as history as a successful president. And the things you didn't do, people forget very quickly. And they just focus on the things you did do. And we define, you define yourself as a success. And that's the business model of the modern president. If I don't do what I say, if I don't pass this bill and step down, I'm a liar. I've betrayed the trust. I will be defined as a failure uh, for the purpose that I was elected to office for. So I don't have any mandate beyond the mandate to do this one thing. And once I do, if I don't do this one thing, or if I do this one thing and try to hang on, hell, there would be a revolution because I would have betrayed the most important public trust. I have set myself up to be called out because I've given myself no wiggle room. There's one thing I'm going to do and then I'm going to step aside. Now, I think that should be enough. But what I've said on our, you know, on our website, I've said a fact, I'm willing to give my resignation letter to somebody we all trust, you know, somebody like Jimmy Carter or somebody like that, who holds the resignation letter and waits until the thing happens that I've said has to happen. Then he turns the resignation letter in. There it is. It's outside of my control in the sense that uh, somebody we trust is going to act in a way that executes on that power. If that's what people need, I'm happy to do whatever is necessary to make sure that, the, that they have a reason to believe that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to uh, do. But I think if you think about it, what else would I be doing? Um, you know, I've got my family. I've got my friends. I've got my uh, whole circle of people who would look at me and say, what the hell? What are you doing? You said this is the one thing that you would do and then step aside. So, you know, I remember Frodo, when Frodo was going to grab the ring and throw it into the mountain, he was tempted. He held the ring on his hand. Somebody had to bite the finger off his hand to get the ring into the mountain. Um, you know, there'll be people like you around me, Cenk. I'm sure that uh, you'll make sure that I hold true to the, to the promises I make. I think that's that aforementioned shovel we were talking about. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I hear you, but so now there's skeptics in Washington, and uh, they'll say, well, uh, we, we've seen this happening before with uh, Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. Uh, so, you know, you're going to get into office, and then you're going to say you're not doing it for power, and then you're going to turn around. Okay, you know what? Let's look at your Mayday pack, right? Uh, you start a pack. Uh, you know, about a year ago, uh, and now are they going to turn around and support you? Uh, you say you're against money in politics, but you have a pack, and then they're ready to go conveniently as you start to run for president. How would you address that? Yeah, so I mean, we were very careful about that with the Mayday Pack. Um, Mayday Pack has said it's not in the presidential race. Um, unlike Jeb Bush, who basically raised money for his pack while he said he was not a candidate and then stopped raising money for his PAC and said he would be a candidate, and now that PAC is going to support him, nothing like that is true with Mayday. Mayday's focus is on Congress, and I hope they stay focused on Congress. I'm not on their board anymore. I don't have any effect on what they do, but I hope they stay focused on Congress because I think that's where they're doing great work, to turn members of Congress to committing, fundamental, to, committing to making fundamental reform. Um, so I think I've been consistent on that. Um, but, you know, what you're talking about is exactly right. 
People have got to have a reason to believe me. They've got to listen to me. They've got to believe that this is what I'm going to do. They've got to believe that they can put this mandate behind me and believe I'm going to act on it. That's a fair question. And there's going to be skeptics. I get it. There should be skeptics. It's an important thing I'm talking about doing. Um, but look, there is no certain plan here, Chank. There is no guarantee. We have no strategy that gets us with certainty to the democracy we deserve democracy our children deserve. There is no guaranteed uh, program here. All we can do is take our best shot. So I'm, I'm listening. I'm really listening for somebody to show me a better shot, somebody to show me a plan that if implemented and if it worked would give us a more certain outcome of, of getting us back a democracy. I haven't heard it. Uh, and if I do, I'm happy to step aside. But so far, I just have not heard it. You know, and people uh, ask me the same thing, and I and I gotta say, look, uh, as much as you know, I deeply respect uh, Bernie Sanders. I think the Republicans will tackle him, and, and I and I I can't see how he solves this problem without committing all of his energy and resources to it. And if you don't solve this problem, then you're not gonna solve the other problems. You're just not gonna solve them, right? You can have the best intentions in the world, and you're not gonna do it. So as much as I love and respect him. I can't see a way on how he gets this done or how anybody gets it done unless they say it's pretty much the only thing I'm going to do, right? So that, that, that's where I am with it. And that, that, and, but I just do a talk show. That's easy for me to say, right? Now, you're, you're a Harvard Law professor. You're doing this. My guess is that if it doesn't work, and a lot of people think, let's be honest, that Mayday Pact didn't work, right? Uh, then... You know, there's some downsides for you. You know, is, is it going to be embarrassing? And, and what, what did you risk here in, in this run? Yeah, you know, what, what was really striking was that when I talked to people about this, especially when I talked to political insiders about this, that was their number one response. It was like, gosh, this is going to be so embarrassing for you. It's going to be such a humiliation if you do this and fail. And you shouldn't risk your own reputation for something like this. And after, you know, and I felt that because, you know, I'm not a guy with completely tough skin. I mean, the Mayday experience has thickened my skin a bunch, but I'm still pretty weak when it comes to putting up with criticism. Um, but I described this criticism to my friend, to a very close friend, and he left my office. And a minute later, he came back and he said, you know, you're going to run. And I said, what do you mean? How do you know that? He said, because the only reason you've given me for not running is that you might be embarrassed. And the thing is, I know this about you. That is not a reason for you. You will never live with yourself if this is the reason you give. And I think that's true. You're right. I could be embarrassed. This could be total humiliation for me. I would just have to retire to the quiet halls of the Harvard Law School and teach my classes, and my students would snicker as I walked by. That would be my life. But you know, hell, Cenk, people go to war. They go to war to defend our democracy. They risk losing their lives. They come back without legs. That's sacrifice. That's bravery. Having people make fun of you, that's shit. That's nothing. And I've got to be willing to take on a risk ever much as bold as the risk our soldiers are taking on. Because, you know, I never had to serve as a soldier. I never had to do that duty. So I'm willing to take this duty as substitute for that. Donald and I both never went to war. 
but I'm going to take this on, and I don't have $10 billion to protect myself if, in fact, I lose this one. Yeah, you know, some people out there might not know, but uh, Professor Lessig, I mean, has is not only the godfather of getting money out of politics in that movement, but is a huge uh, advocate for net neutrality and was uh, instrumental in that, has enormous respect in, in the field over that, and honestly, in the online community, from the very young to people who've been in the fight from day one. So it's not an insignificant reputation to risk. It's not just any old teacher uh, sitting uh, in a classroom somewhere. And, uh, and I think you are taking quite a risk. And I'll, it's, look, but I agree with you. Any risk that, that you take uh, pales in comparison. I was talking about it just on the show today to the civil rights leaders. Julian John Bond just passed away. My God, what, what they did, whether it's walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge knowing that they're going to get a cavalry charge, or uh, sitting in those diners waiting uh, to leave the diner with the KKK waiting uh, in, the, in the thick of dark uh, for them. The Freedom Riders knowing that they're going to exit the bus in Mississippi and, they're, and they're, they're waiting with robes on. Compared to that, it's a relatively slow, <laughs> small risk. You know, you know, Tom Brokaw writes about the greatest generation. And what he meant by that was the generation that went off to the war to fight fascism that sacrificed themselves for what they thought um, was necessary for the public good. Um, that generation faced real sacrifice. The generation that fought the civil rights wars, they faced real sacrifices. And when I look around at our generation, I kind of fear our generation might be the worst generation because we're not willing to make even tiny sacrifices to get our democracy back. They go to war against the Nazis to protect democracy, what are we willing to do here? Now, you're right. I, my own personal sacrifice is nothing here. But what I think we have to do is we have to get people to recognize they need to make a sacrifice too. And what is that sacrifice? No, nobody's going to beat people as they fight for this equality. There's not going to be German shepherds trained on their necks. There will be no Bull Connor in this fight. There will be no shot fired in Memphis assassinating one of the greatest freedom fighters in American history. None of those consequences will happen here. All that will happen here is that we might get yelled at, we might get made fun of, we might have people call us naive and ignorant about how power in America works. Those are the sacrifices we have got to be willing to make if we deserve the tradition that's called America. It's interesting. You know, there's one other person that I know in the race uh, a little personally, and, and it's not Hillary Clinton, it's not Bernie Sanders, it's not any of them, it, that could possibly be in the race. And that's, that's Al Gore, uh, the former vice president. And the main reason people give, and it's not the reason he gives, and I don't know what his reason is, is he might risk his reputation. And he's got a significant reputation as well. There's no question about that. But it just doesn't seem like, like it's a big personal sacrifice. But in the overall scope of things, it doesn't seem like a sacrifice that we can't ask people to make. And, and so, okay, so that's him in his context, that's you in this context. What would you want people to do in terms of the sacrifice they're willing to make? If, if you're right, I, I'm right, and, and our democracy's on the line here, and, and if you want to regain democracy by getting money out of politics... What would you want the average person that's watching this video that actually cares about America, believes in our democracy, to do? Yeah, they've got to join this campaign. And what that means is not to join the campaign for me, necessarily. They've got to join the campaign in first explaining why this referendum is absolutely necessary and to help people to understand 
what this referendum would do. You know, the biggest thing that we saw when you first started talking about this when I wrote about it is people had this understanding that to be for Lessig was to be against Bernie Sanders. To be for Lessig would be against having a woman president like Hillary Clinton. Well, that's just not the truth. What we can see is that this is both and. We can have a referendum and then have the next great president. And this understanding is going to take people explaining it. And it's not going to be explained in 30-second ads on television. It's going to be explained person to person on Facebook posts or by clever ways of putting videos up that people watch and go viral or tweets or other ways in which we now have the ability to convince and educate ourselves about what we need to do. And as this percolates and more people support the campaign and they signal their support by giving $10 a month to our Kickstarter, um, then it gets the attention of the media. And the media begins to say that, you know, they were wrong about this too. Because they've been wrong about a lot of things in the last couple of years. Of course, Bernie Sanders was never going to happen until he did. Uh, uh, the Donald Trump was, of course, going to blow up his whole campaign seven or eight times until he didn't. The conventional wisdom in politics today is pretty bad about these citizen-driven movements. So what we need to do is to get people to participate in that movement by either giving us money, spreading the word, or making it clear to everybody this is the change that's got to happen. So finally, Professor Lessig, is your dream scenario, your home run, you get elected as the referendum president, and then you have a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren type of person as your VP in the wings, you solve the money and politics issue, and then you say to Bernie or Elizabeth, whoever it might be, have at it, Hoss. Now go fix everything. Yeah, that's the idea. It's to make it possible for the next president, the next great president, to be a truly great president by having a government that can actually respond to them and the people as opposed to responding to the funders. It's to make it possible for them to govern, to give them a democracy again. And to do it as quickly as possible and to let uh, the referendum just be a point where we all affirm what I think we already believe, that a democracy, a representative democracy, is supposed to be a system that represents us, not the tiny fraction of the 1% who fund the campaigns these politicians depend on. All right, Professor all right. Larry Lessig, uh, whether you agree with him or not, whether you'll vote for him or not, whether you'll donate to him or not, uh, a man who is clearly uh, trying his best uh, to fix the system. And uh, for that, uh, I applaud you. Uh, and, and we have our differences on whether it's an amendment, a law, or whatever it might be. But anyone actually trying to fix the system, I believe, is headed in the right direction. Larry Lessig, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks. Thanks, Shank.